Uh oh. oh. Good morning. Happy Easter week two. We uh, don't worry, nothing's happening behind the table. <laughs> oh. Today, today we complete our journey through the Gospel of John. If you remember, our journey began on Christmas Eve, and today we've finally reached the conclusion. So before we begin, let us pray. Let us pray for God to open the doors of our minds and our hearts, that we might have life, indeed, that we might have life to the full. God of life, your Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. God of life, your spirit enabled Easter's eyewitnesses to tell the truth. God of life, your spirit draws us to Christ even now, making Christ present wherever he feels absent. Send your spirit now to give us peace, joy, and life through the proclamation of the Easter gospel. Amen. Unless I see the nail mark in his hands, I won't believe. These are the words that earned one of Jesus' disciples the name Doubting Thomas. You know the nickname, right? (laughs) Doubting Thomas. Long before the scientific age in which we now live, there was a first century Jew named Thomas with similar doubts, skepticism, and well-researched reasons for not believing that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. So here's the backstory. Jesus of Nazareth, was Thomas's teacher, his rabbi, his professor. And Jesus was killed on a Friday. And the next Sunday morning, he reportedly was seen alive again. As you can imagine, this was breaking news, headline news. But suspicions ran high. Was this for real or was this just a wishful rumor? So now it's evening of that same Sunday, and Thomas is alone. The other disciples, they're huddled together behind locked doors, but Thomas is not with them. He's alone. Perhaps he's watching 60 Minutes report the breaking news as he tries to process the reports about Jesus being raised from the dead. His mind simply can't handle it. It's not that he doesn't want to believe. He just can't. It's all so unreasonable. Dead people stay dead end of story. As Thomas ruminates on the reports, his brain churns out rebuttal after rebuttal on why it's just not possible for Jesus to have been raised from the dead. You see, Thomas is the intellectual type. Maybe you know some people like this. Maybe you are this person. He's the guy who enters the room and he starts analyzing everything. He's an observer, His mind is always in motion, in high gear, thinking about this, thinking about that. He's the guy who comes home from a party, and he gets to work analyzing all the ideas that were shared. That is, if he even goes to the party. Truth is, he'd rather stay home with a book in order to deepen his grasp of the philosophy of Cicero. You know anybody like that? (laughs) Thomas, Thomas is the guy who's read way too many books, by way t- on way too many subjects that way too many of us care nothing about. He's a great guy to have on your trivia team, don't get me wrong, but don't get him started on ancient philosophy. 
Do you all know people like Thomas? Perhaps you are that person staring at Stephanie. (laughs) So it's Sunday afternoon, and Thomas gets a call from one of his friends, or at least that's how I like to see it go down. He says, hey, Thomas, have you heard the news? Jesus is alive. Mary just saw him this morning. Peter and John, they ran to the tomb, and they found it empty, just like Mary had said. Isn't that incredible? So here's the deal. Everyone is meeting at my place this evening. Perhaps, perhaps we'll see the Lord too. So I'll see you before sundown. Thomas, he, he thinks for a minute, and then he replies, won't the Jewish authorities be looking for us there? I mean, they'll probably think we stole the body. We got to be careful. I, I don't know. No need to worry, Thomas. We'll make sure the doors are locked and secure. God will protect us. We just need to stick together. Come on over. No thanks, Thomas responds. I just can't tonight. Now, I don't know if that's exactly how it went down, but I do know from Scripture that Thomas was not with them that first Sunday evening. And it's more than reasonable to assume that he was invited, as he was one of the twelve. This means that Thomas refuses the invitation to the Sunday evening gathering. He refuses to meet with the other disciples. And this is the reason. Thomas wants proof. Thomas needs proof. In a scientific age like our own, the need is even greater among people. Unless unless I see the nail mark in his hands, I won't believe. But then something happens for Thomas. It's the same thing that has happened to skeptics throughout the ages. Former skeptics like C.S. Lewis, perhaps you know him, author of the popular Narnia series. Something happens for Thomas and for skeptics, and it still happens today. It was written down carefully, Thomas' story was, in John's Gospel. These words are trustworthy and true. Listen to chapter 20, starting with verse 19. The word of the Lord from the Common English Bible. It was still the first day of the week, Sunday. That evening, while the disciples were behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hand and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail mark in his hands and put my finger in the wounds left by the nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, His disciples were again in a house, and this time, Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, peace 
be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied, do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who, see, who don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll, but these things are written so that, so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. This is the good news of Jesus, the word of the Lord. So what happened for Thomas? What has happened to skeptics throughout the ages? What still happens today, even in an age of stiff scientific reasoning? Did you hear it in Thomas' testimony? Jesus happened. (laughs) And Jesus still happens today. Jesus shows up despite our doubts. Jesus makes himself present where we, we thought he was absent. Jesus stands among us and declares over us, shalom, peace be with you. Jesus happens for Thomas, and he happens for us, and he proves that he can be trusted. Verse 26, even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The doors of Thomas' heart were locked before Jesus showed up. The greatest strength of Thomas' personality was his hard-working intellect, but his greatest strength became his greatest weakness. This is often the case for us as well. Thomas could not wrap his head around the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. Therefore, he reasoned it could not be true. For Thomas, like many people today, his own intellect was the final authority on truth. After all, he was so smart. If he couldn't make sense of it, then it must not be true. With this mindset, pride began to swell up within him, as if to protect him from appearing dumb to other intellectuals. His desire for others to perceive him as smart was so intense that in just a matter of days, he went from agnosticism, I don't know if it's true, to atheism, God is dead. But then something happened. Jesus happened. Jesus entered the locked doors of his mind with his gentle yet powerful presence. Jesus spoke peace into the skeptic atmosphere of Jesus' mind, or of Thomas' mind. Not only that, but Jesus followed it up with exactly what Thomas demanded. That's remarkable. Put your finger here. Look at my hands, put your hand into my side, no more disbelief, believe. It took time, though, for Thomas. It always does. The process from unbelief to belief, it takes time. For Thomas, it was actually quite quick compared to today's standards. It only took eight days after Easter Sunday. I have a hunch it takes much longer for today's skeptics. I'm talking months, 
or years or even decades. Some, of course, never change their minds. But not Thomas. By the grace of Jesus, Thomas unlocked the doors of his minds and welcomed in Jesus' presence. By God's grace, this happens today as well. And for Thomas, it took eight days. Eight days after Easter, the disciples were gathered together again. But something is different this time around. This time, Thomas is with them. Did you hear that in the scripture text? Just over a week ago, he refused the invitation and he missed out on the joy of Jesus' presence. He stayed home alone, ruminating on all the reasonable arguments for why Jesus could not possibly have raised from the dead. But eight days later, he shows up. He was absent, but now he's present. What happened during those eight days? What do you think? What caused the shift from his absence to his presence? I don't think he had changed his mind yet about Jesus being raised from the dead. But something changed. Something led him to showing up this time around. And showing up made all the difference. I wonder what happened. Now, in some sense, we can only speculate. But here's what I think made a big difference. I think Thomas' willingness to expose his doubt for what it actually was helped him move closer to faith in Jesus. Let me explain what I mean because it sounds counterintuitive. In our scripture text, as I said, Thomas didn't show up at the first gathering And then he named his doubts out loud to his friends. Unless I see, I won't believe. A week later, for whatever reason, Thomas shows up at the gathering, and that's when he experiences the risen Jesus for himself. I think part of the reason, part of the process that led Thomas to change his mind about Jesus was precisely his willingness to express his doubts out loud to his friends. Are we willing to grow closer to Jesus by working through our doubts? Believe it or not, there's research out there that confirms the point. Social scientists teach us that the articulation of doubt actually encourages the process of belief transformation. To put it simply, naming our doubt supports genuine belief. Otherwise, we stay stuck. Our faith runs on autopilot, if you will. So it's not doubt that poses the greatest threat to our faith. It's unexpressed doubt that is so lethal. Friends, it's what we do with our doubt that matters most. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me, and I know many of you, some of you, maybe are a little uncomfortable So let me go a little bit deeper. What is doubt? Doubt's a feeling, right? It's a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. Like all feelings, they present themselves to us, sometimes without our permission. Take anger, for example. To feel anger is not to sin. That's what Paul teaches the Ephesians. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's what Paul says. It's not the emotion of anger that is wrong in and of itself. 
It's what we do with the anger that matters. Whether we lash out or whether we take a moment, pray, respond gently. In the same way, it's what we do with doubt that matters. I want to suggest that doubt is not the opposite of belief, as we commonly presume. Rather, doubt naturally comes along from time to time, often without our asking for it. Usually it coexists with some form of belief. We have an example of this in Mark's Gospel. Do you remember this story? The father of a troubled little boy tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Have you ever been brave enough to pray that? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. When we name our doubts as they come, that allows us to work through them. It allows us to draw closer to Jesus in a more authentic and sincere way. Now, I'm not encouraging doubt. I'm not encouraging anyone to doubt. The goal is not doubt, not at all. The goal is a sincere trust in God. But to get there, I believe most of us must be willing to name the doubts that we already have. It's not about coming up with doubts. It's about naming the ones that are there. If we don't, then they will come up eventually. So I'm encouraging us not to doubt, but I'm encouraging us to work through the doubts that we already have, to work through them diligently while fixing our eyes on Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's what I believe happened for Thomas over those eight days. Doubts arose in his heart, for sure. It's possible that his personality, like some of our personalities, are more prone to feelings of uncertainty. But Thomas did not repress his doubts. He did not pretend like things were fine. He did not live by the mantra, fake it till you make it. Instead, he named his doubts to trustworthy friends. Doing so actually opened up his mind enough so that eight days later he had just enough motivation to show up at the gathering of Jesus' disciples. And showing up is what made all the difference. There's something else, too, that played an important role in motivating Thomas to show up. Not only did he name his doubts honestly to his friends, he also had friends kind enough and generous enough to come to him. The other disciples did not ignore Thomas. They did not shun him or shame him. They did not scold him for doubting or argue with him. Dude, where were you? Instead, they patiently pursue him with love. They leave the house in which they're staying, and they go to Thomas. Upon finding him, here's what they do. They simply tell him what they experienced. We have seen the Lord. So eight days later, after Thomas has named his doubts, after his friends have come alongside him to tell them what they've experienced, then Thomas shows up. And it's there that Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. It's there that Jesus enters the once locked doors of Thomas's heart and mind. It's there that Jesus turns to Thomas and says, 
put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hands into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Upon seeing and hearing Jesus, Thomas is overwhelmed with trust. (laughs) My Lord and my God. As one commentator puts it, this is the only fully adequate confession on the lips of a character of the gospel. My Lord and my God. It comes from the lips of the one who most honestly expressed his doubt. Doubting Thomas becomes trusting Thomas. And tradition has it that he is the one who boldly carries the good news of Jesus all the way to the country of India. Friends, I have observed in my relatively short life that it's often the case that the people who most genuinely and sincerely trust Jesus, who are willing to do brave and adventurous things for Jesus, they are the same people who once were brave enough to trudge through the trail of doubt, only to find the risen Jesus present all along the way. So what about you? Do you have any doubting Thomas in you? Perhaps in your past? Perhaps even now? Have you ever responded like Thomas responded on that first Easter Sunday? You avoid certain places with certain people because you and only you know that you no longer fit in. Have you ever repressed doubts? Turning inward, you keep to yourself. Do you know what it's like to be alone with your doubts? Have you been there? Are you there now? If so, know that Thomas is with you in that place. I believe God is with you in that place. There's nothing shameful about having doubts. It's what you do with your doubts that make all the difference. So what do you do with your feelings of uncertainty? your questions about God? Do you distance yourself from God and God's people out of fear or shame? Or do you show up with faith maybe just the size of a mustard seed, faith that just maybe God will show up too? Do you let your doubts fester? Or do you pursue really good answers? Do you repress doubts the moment you feel them? Or do you admit them first to yourself and then maybe to God? Do you keep your questions to yourself, hiding behind this mask of niceness? Or do you courageously open up to a trustworthy friend? Friends, it's what you do with your doubts that makes all the difference. Let's press into this a little bit more, if you can bear it. Have you ever, like Thomas, Set the terms for what it will take to dispel your doubt. (laughs) God, unless I see the, the, the the, the, the nail, the wounds in your hands, I will not believe. God, unless you heal this cancer, I won't believe that you're all powerful and good. God, unless you raise me up from this pit of depression, I won't believe that you are a God who cares. God, unless you explain all the contradictions that I see in the Bible, 
I won't believe that it's trustworthy. God, unless... Friends, perhaps that's why doubting Thomas is so popular in our culture. Don't we all have a bit of doubting Thomas within us from time to time? For many of us who grew up in church, I suspect our doubts live mostly under the radar. But get this, unexpressed doubt, that's the kind that grows like mold on our souls, and we ignore it to our own peril. As I once heard, repression has a high rate of resurrection. It's a great line. Repression has a high rate of resurrection. Repressed doubts often surface in moments of crisis, at the moments that you are least prepared to deal with them. I've seen this happen myself. So let us learn from Thomas and name our doubts. Let us learn also from the poets who wrote the Psalms. That's a book in the Bible filled with people praying sincere prayers of doubt, filled with questions. Let us imitate these saints in the faith, for only those who dare to admit their doubt like Thomas will share in a deep and abiding trust like his. Only after we trudge through the trail of doubt can we confess together with an undivided heart, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. All of this has far-reaching implications for what we might call outreach and evangelism. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Friends, as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sent the disciples. And it appears, get this, it appears their first mission was to bring back their friend Thomas. Jesus sends us too. And part of our mission is to bring back others like Thomas. Those who in their doubts have left Jesus and left the church. You know people like this, don't you? There's a, actually a term for this category of people. They're called the de-churched. The de-churched. I assure you there are no shortage of de-churched people in the greater Lafayette area. The de-churched are those who were once active in a local church, but who have now just disengaged altogether. Research, research shows us that 59% of young adults age 18 to 29 fit this category. Friends, Jesus breathes on us the Holy Spirit and says, go into your community, into your workplaces, into your neighborhoods, into your social networks, and bring back the Thomases. Bring back the de-churched. Tell them your experience. We have seen the Lord. Do you believe this is Jesus' word to us? Friends, may we make every effort to graciously, humbly, and boldly bring back those who are absent from God. This is how we love our neighbors, family members, and friends. One more thing. Now suppose a few of these people return by the grace of God, working through our loving outreach. What kind of community will they find? Chances are, these folks will still have more than a few questions, more than a few doubts. 
So what kind of church must we be in order to embrace doubters like Thomas, in order to help them along the journey toward the risen Christ? Here's some more research findings from the Barna Group that provides some clues as to what sort of community we must be if we are to be helpful. Research finds that of all 18 to 29-year-olds with, with a Christian background, 38% admit that they have gone through a period of when they have significantly doubted their faith. 38% of Christians, young Christians, one in four admit that there were, these were significant intellectual doubts. If I'm honest, I fell under that category for a period of time during college. One in four significant intellectual doubts. The saddest thing of all the findings to me now as a young pastor is this. Fully one-third of all young Christians agree with this statement. I don't feel that I can ask my most pressing life questions in church. If young people can't ask their most pressing life questions in church, then what are we doing? <laughs> what are we talking about? I don't know if Heartland is much better than the average. Of course, I'd like to think so. But either way, here's what we must do. We must admit, and I can't emphasize this enough, we must be, Heartland must be a church where people have permission to doubt. If we are going to love people where they are at and not just where we want them to be, if we are going to reach out beyond our comfortable Christian circles, if we are going to imitate Jesus who seeks and saves the lost, then we must be a church where people have permission to doubt, even to doubt publicly. And to do so, without fear of being scolded or lectured or shunned or talked about in gossip circles during fellowship time. That's the kind of church we must be if we want to reach people like Doubting Thomas, who eight days later became one of the church's biggest proponents of the gospel, taking it all the way to India. So I agree with David Kinneman. He's the president of the Barna Group. He puts it like this. He says, I believe Unexpressed doubt is one of the most powerful destroyers of faith. When a person feels as though church is not a safe place to be honest, he or she feels compelled to pretend, to put on a show, which all too often results in a faith that is no more than skin deep. We cannot solve doubt like a puzzle, but we can create communities that hold doubt and faith and proper balance. <laughs> this kind of authenticity is scary. I realize that. But if we want to be a church that reaches the unchurched, if we want to be a church that's hospitable to young people, we must become the kind of community that allows people to be where they are in their spiritual life. We must become the kind of people where doubting Thomases feel welcome, where doubting Thomas can show up even after admitting he doesn't believe, where doubting Thomas can see for himself the goodness and glory of God revealed by Jesus. Can we become such a community, Heartland? Lord, help us. Lord, let us, like the New Testament church, 
be good evidence for those who doubt. Lord, let us, like Jesus, enter the lives of people hiding behind locked doors and declare to them, peace be with you. Lord, let us, like Thomas, come to you with the doubts that we already have. And Lord, may you in your grace give us just what we need to deepen our dependence and reliance upon you, Jesus, our Lord and our God. Amen.